0: This is Robert Clotworthy, the narrator of the Curse of Oak Island, and I have a question for you: Could it be that you are listening to the
1: Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream?
0: This is a top pocket find, mate, for sure.
2: Hey, everyone, welcome to the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. I am your host, Jeff Freeman, and sitting in the co-host chair tonight is Tom Burns. Tom, hello everybody. For you. So, you know, you know, we have our the name of our show, The Curse of Oak Island and Beyond. And tonight, on Thursday nights, we like to step beyond. And as you guys have seen, some of the shows we've had here in the uh, past few Thursday nights, uh, we've had a great time, haven't we, Tom, with some of our guests? Yes, we've had a great time. We had uh, we did a Sam Bass uh, just a few weeks ago. So that was covered that episode for Sam Bass uh, and that we had Gypsy. Uh, Jules and Donna McCauley on. That was a fantastic show. It was a lot of fun. Then we had the Riverboat Riches. Um, With Matt Hawley. Yep. Yep. With Matt Hawley. Absolutely. And then we also had the 1715 fleet that we talked about a little bit. And that was Robert uh, Westrick. Westrick. Uh, Yep. Yep. He joined us. And that was, again, it was so fun. And tonight, I tell (laughs) you, this is one of the ones I really, I've been, I always say that I've been looking forward to this, but I really have been looking forward to this one. The show was on, not this week, but last week. And it was the Peter Easton's Plunder. And I tell you what, Jan and Linda, they worked so hard, but Jan went out and she she reached out to a couple of the folks that were on the show um, that are going to come on with us right now. I'm going to bring them on here in just a second here. And they're going to help take us through that show and also some of the other things that they're both working on. So without further ado, let me introduce we have uh scarlet uh genesis and bill smith thank you guys for coming
1: you're welcome hi
2: so on the show you guys were both on with uh with maddie blake and you had uh, i think it was rick uh, rick lagina was out there and you got to meet both of them Uh, we've been fortunate enough to have maddie blake on the show with us here uh maddie's great guy we like him a lot he's a good friend of the show um but we haven't met rick yet so you you got a leg up on us on that you got to meet rick So that was really neat. Um, As I do on these shows, I like to get a little bit of background, if I could, just to kind of introduce yourselves to us a little bit. And we'll go ladies first. Scarlett, you know, you are a land and marine archaeologist um, and you've got quite a background. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in all this. What, What spurred your interest to get involved in something like this?
1: Archaeology has always been a passion of mine, of course, but it's not that easy for women to get into it. At at least it wasn't when I first started. And the other thing I always had a passion for was water. Uh, My father was a dredging engineer, so I got introduced to being on the water, near the water when I was quite young Mm -hmm. and uh, tried to couple that. So when I did my, my master's degree, I was being steered into doing just lithics, which are stone materials, um, and I didn't want to do just that. So I found an underwater resource and that kind uh, of got me into the whole thing. And from there, I joined a, a group called the Ontario Marine Heritage Committee. And there were some real um, good people there who, who took me under their wing and taught me some things. And then I formed my own consulting company. Wow. And then I was uh, the, the first um, um, person doing marine archaeology as a consulting business in Ontario. And I continue to do that right now, although I have a bit more competition. Sadly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, on this particular project, however, I got involved because of a call from one of the producers, Trent Bullard. And he said, um, is, can you are you interested in helping us and can you get a license in Newfoundland? So that was their sticking issue because they mm-hmm. couldn't find somebody who was available to get a license in Newfoundland. Oh, wow. And I've done work in Labrador before, so my name was known, which was good. And so I said, well, let me make the inquiry. And I did. I spoke with a provincial archaeologist and and one of his staff actually had worked with me when I was wor- working in Red Bay Labrador oh, wow. with Parks Canada. So that didn't hurt and so yeah. within, within about 48 hours we had the license and uh, like I, I was pretty last minute on the program they were scrambling i don't think they realized they needed someone with a license right ah. um and then i was originally just supposed to be a consultant on the project I wasn't supposed to be on the air at all and they called me before i got on the plane and said would you entertain possibly being on the the film as well and i said if you think it adds any value to it, sure. So <laughs> there you go, a semi-star was born. <laughs> oh,
3: and it definitely does add to the broadcast.
1: Oh, well, I'm thank sure. you. I, I was surprised that I wasn't uh, there wasn't more cutting room material of me there. To be quite honest, uh, um, I figured there'd be very little of me there because I'm not the star. Uh, Rick was the star for for sure, and Bill—that's his project, it's his passion—and I was just there to assist with the project.
2: Ah. Well, yeah. I'm certainly glad that they did reach out to you and you came on the show because you did add to the show very much so. Thank you. Oh, so.
1: Well, thank you. I, I had a lot of fun. They're good people to be with. And, and in the space of three days, it was packed full of a whole bunch of activities. But because we're on a boat for such a long period of time to get from Harbor Grace over to oh, Boleyn, yeah. We got to know each other very, very well. Um, you know, you're you're trapped in a in a small space, and and you get to know people very intimately in that little short piece of time. So, I I considered them friends, and you know, Bill and I still stay in touch, and and Rick stayed in touch for a bit, but he's a busy boy. Mm-hmm. So, um, they're all good people. Enjoyed myself immensely. Yeah.
3: Yeah, because they said on the show it was what a two-hour boat trip across to where you were actually doing the diving so
1: yeah yeah and that doesn't we're not even talking about how many times you get on and off the boat for the filming right to get it right and no I
3: suppose yeah. I,
1: I was a hindrance to them I'm, I'm not going to lie because I have a, a bad knee I'm waiting for knee surgery
3: oh. which is
1: One of the reasons I wasn't in the water um, oh. because uh, I was supposed to be in the water with them and I just oh, really? I just can't put the weight uh with the fin on it and the ankle weight and everything else which is why i brought alana with me
3: alana okay so alana was was with you okay i wonder where she came from yeah
1: yeah no she's she's mine (laughs) and uh, so she was my eyes and ears in the water um because the provincial archaeologist again wanted someone to actually be in the water with them uh they weren't happy with just being um my watching through the Rove uh, video, even though it was live the entire time. And this way she could have reached out and stopped anybody from doing that, anything that the license didn't permit.
3: they, They wanted somebody down there to actually make sure you don't touch
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But quite honestly, we we had a pre-dive brief as to what they could and couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were very acquiescent with everything. They were they wanted to do it right. And they were very interested in in the approach that we needed to do. And were very respectful of the resource. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's neat. And I I just popped up that um, uh, picture there of Alana McDonald. Uh, yeah. And she did a great job too. And it was really neat. And that's, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you was that, um, um, you know, about, have you, obviously you said in the water, so you've, you've got your, your dive license as well and all that. So that's um, so have you done quite a few dives and looking at shipwrecks and things like that?
1: Yeah, I probably have about um, 3,500 hours underwater. Yeah.
2: Oh, wow. Now, which is quite wow. a
1: long, yeah. Ooh. And um, like that's I used amazing. to be uh, a Well, I used to be a dive instructor, so that gets you in the water a lot more as well. And I've been down uh, diving at Truck Lagoon in Micronesia, which was a fantastic opportunity. That's uh, where the Japanese um, um, were bombed their their ships and their planes. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, war vessels that are in water there. So very interesting. And then I live in a community where uh, we have a national marine park So it's easy. And uh, the one summer I worked with Parks Canada in Red Bay, Labrador, um, I put in about 400 hours just in that one summer alone. I was gonna
3: ask you about that one, yeah. That was quite a project too.
1: Oh, incredible. It was a 1565 Spanish Basque whaling ship that we were working on. I was (sighs) out there in the the fourth year of the, the project. And we basically, Um, dismantled like first we drew drew the wreck in place then dismantled it took it up and there were drafts on the board our barge and they drew it again and then we put the entire wreck back underwater and buried it under a a concrete cap so Uh it's been preserved because conservation of of any materials that you bring up from underwater incredibly expensive so you don't want to go that route if you can avoid a, a resource underwater you don't bring it up um, an example of that is uh, I was working in the Saint Clair River near Sarnia, Ontario, and the uh, the client was trying to be um, proactive, and and we'd found a wreck uh, of the Mary Pringle. It was a steamboat, uh, not a steamboat, sorry, a steamship. And uh, what we found was a rudder, and it was about four meters long. So the the client said, "Can we preserve this?" So I checked it out. Was over a million dollars to preserve just the rudder alone so you just don't go That's that way right oh so when people goodness. say bring the ship up well there's a lot more to it than bring oh the my ship goodness
3: up. so That's what is incredible. it when it hits the fresh air the fresh air starts to the
1: yeah anything with wood if it starts to dry out uh mm-hmm. like it's made up of cellulose so those, okay. those small cells start to shrink which means that the wood then starts to crack and warp and and basically it will fall to dust eventually.
3: It's gonna crumble, disintegrate.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so you you want to um, uh, impregnate it with something called PEG, uh, polyethylene glycol, and it's a very long term uh, management solution to preserving something, but again, very expensive. The the, uh, ship, the Vasa, the warship Vasa in uh, Sweden, it's preserved that way, um, but I've been told it's got the consistency of Swiss cheese right now because mm. they've been spraying it over and over and over again. So, yeah, you uh, don't want to go that route.
3: It's only a question. <laughs> so, so you put the you put the components of the ship back, and then you put a concrete cap over
1: it. Yeah, Parks Canada did. I, I did. Oh yeah,
3: Parks well, did. Parks Canada. But yes,
1: yeah. and then they they uh, made up a model of the, of the ship as well. Not life size, but it's in the Canadian uh, History Museum in Ottawa. In Hull, actually, Quebec. So, yeah. So, it's very oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, these cannon, for example, that we were looking at in Boleyn, um, it, you know, again, to bring them up, it's a conservation problem. And you could see on some of the footage that that uh, we had with the roof, that they were encrusted as well with yep. coral. On it. Definitely and, crusted, yeah. Yeah. You've got to take that off very carefully. Otherwise, some of the metal comes away with it as well. So, conservation is, is a real key issue. But underneath all of that, uh, again, there might've been some identifying marks um, mm-hmm. and that might've led us to to know whether those cannon were French or Spanish or, or British. So, Yeah, Let's because you'd the right
3: mentioned, mentioned there was basically three possibilities here, right?
1: It, that Sorry. we know about, you know, yeah. again, yeah. like the Basque were over there as well. And, and so they could have uh, done that. You have to remember too, these people, uh, when they captured each other's ships, they would take the,
2: this stuff and use That's it. That's what I was going to mention. Yeah. Yeah, sure they would, yeah. yeah. So you so, could get a, you could get a mix of the different countries equipment by the fact that they were captured and they're going to continue to use them. Right. They're not going to, they don't yeah. have more to outfit the ship with different cannons.
1: Yeah. yeah one, one cannon or two cannons not going to identify a ship for you. Again, it could be, they've taken these uh, Spanish cannon and put them on a British ship. There he yep.
2: is. There he is, Bill. Can you hear us? <laughs> yes, I
1: can. Oh, Here you man. go. <laughs> we can hear you too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, fantastic. Well, I tell Thank you what. God, us, I'm tired. Scar- Scar- Scarlett's been doing awesome, telling us about all kinds of interesting stuff. I tell you that, and that was that's so interesting too. Like I said, Scarlett, because you know, like those cannons that were down there, and we mentioned that. This is what we were talking about, Bill, is that those cannons? If that ship is um, I'm going to mute you just for a second, there, Scarlett. I think we're getting a little feedback. So, um, those cannons that they we were um, that that you guys spotted down there, um, you know, if they're if if he's got forty ships, many of those ships were probably some other country's ships, and thereby they're going to use that equipment that came on that ship if it wasn't destroyed. They're going to continue to use it. So, what you're finding in the in the water, it might be his, but might've been English or somebody else's, right? Is that kind of the idea?
0: He went on, um, he went on a bit of a rampage, uh, you know, 1611, 1612, where he was in Southwest Ireland. And then he, um, he migrated down to the Horn of Africa and came back and, uh, at, at different points in time, he took ships that were Portuguese, that were Dutch, that yeah, were uh, French. So you could have cannons from uh, just about any of those uh, eras, or, and certainly they would be older. And you might have a, a combination of larger guns and, and, and things like swivel guns as well. So um, And then some of those, um, like one of the cannons that we saw, I'm not sure if Scarlett mentioned, one of them had the side uh, blown out of it. Blow so Yes, it, yeah. It could have come from a battle, but you could have also seen something like that from that was used as ballast in one of the ships as well.
2: Oh, yeah, okay, sense, very yeah. true. Yeah, that does make a yeah. lot of sense. Yeah, I've I got a picture. Oh, hang on. Okay, hold on. There we go.
0: Scarlet wants to add to that. I think. Yep.
2: Yeah, and am
1: I unmuted? Can yep. You you're. Me? Yep. Yeah. Are. Yep. And the the other possibility too, aside from the ballast, is they may have intentionally. Uh, destroyed that cannon so that it wouldn't end up in somebody else's hands. Right. So there yeah, is a possibility yeah. as well.
2: Yep. Yeah, I just brought up a picture of that one that was on the show, and you can see the large uh, split Rent. in the side of it right there, yeah. yeah. We were
0: pretty excited
3: to see that, but the, both of those cannons.
2: And this one ha- did not have the uh, trund- what do you call it, the trundles on the side? Trunyans. Trun- 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 yes. trun- yeah. On the side, they looked like they were, had been there maybe i don't know blown off or just missing for whatever reason you can see have, where
3: it, it used to be right there yeah she might have been packed a little too tight maybe <laughs>
2: <in some laughs> wow yep
3: so you know and
2: that was something that i know that you mentioned uh scarlet when it started you know you were talking about the um uh, that why you were there and to make sure that everything was handled properly one of the things with that was the fact that you mentioned right off the bat we're not allowed to touch anything so that's got to be, I mean, as a diver going down, that's got to be kind of frustrating. Is it a little bit? I mean, yes, you want to see this, but man, you want to uncover it and really get a good look at it. and You just can't.
1: The, the problem with, um, I won't say the problem with divers, divers are enthusiastic. That's, that's why they're in there. They're looking for uh, things to do and you get shipwreck divers and they want to go down and they, and touching I yep. think that's a human reaction to be able to want to touch. It is. <laughs> yeah. and, and for me okay. as well, don't get me wrong. There, there are times I'm very tempted and, and luckily I'm allowed to touch. So, ah, so, yes. it, so. <laughs> But the thing about touching and moving things around is you lose association with whatever else might be there. So let's say you go down and you pick up um, uh, a glass artifact, uh, like a, a bottle or something, and move it 10 feet over or 5 feet over. And then I come down and I'm trying to do an analysis of the entire wreck site. Mm -hmm. And now that could have told me a story in association with another artifact that was there, for example, a dinner plate. Now I know it would have been part of a dinner service, whereas 10 feet over, I don't know what it's doing there. So the association is gone. So that's what we're afraid of as archaeologists. We don't. The grudge people wanting to be excited about seeing things, and I understand that feeling, as I said about wanting to touch things, but if we lose the association, we lose the story. and that's the kind of stuff that would add to Bill's story
2: with Peter easton mm-hmm. and and that, thank you for that segue because I do want to jump into that a little bit, Bill, um if you would, and uh, just raise your hand when you want to say it because I unfortunately we are getting that feedback, so I am going to mute you again. but yeah, just like you did, just raise your hand if you want I hate to make you do that. <laughs> but uh, right. don't mind, yeah so and bill if you would um you do, you've done a lot of research on peter Easton. said i, I remembered i had to laugh we all i think everybody did at the beginning of the show when uh you guys were in the war room and you were talking with maddie and rick and marty and uh you mentioned and and he said well uh he said to rick said to, to marty that he's a peter Easton or peter easton's his guy and you went no I, peter easton's my guy <laughs> <laughs> wow. that was hilarious i'm telling you it so tell us a little bit about Peter Easton. What what got you involved in Peter Easton and and, and looking into the the whole privateers and stuff? What how did you get started with all this?
0: Um, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, uh, go ahead. Marty and I decided that we would share Easton in the end, so yeah. we, we worked it out. Uh, so it was uh, it was a good experience in the war room, um, and he was quite gracious about that. <laughs> um, uh, There's a couple of different things that happened um, in a remote area of Newfoundland. Um, where I grew up, used to go out on the coastal boats, and you could get on this coastal boat, you'd pay um, $4 to cross a very treacherous area of water, and um, it'd take you, it's about 20, 30 miles across, and um, it's, we'd stay in some of the coastal communities, this was when I was in university, and I remember being up on this bluff of land, and uh, there's an old church steeple behind me, and uh, it had been there for centuries and, and largely uninhabited now. But the people go back there to fish during the summers. And I was sitting on this bluff of land, and I didn't really know where I was at the time. But I was actually looking straight at one of Peter Easton's hideaway. So um, about six years later, I'm in Ontario going to school. And uh, I, I, uh, I was it was, it cost a lot of money to go home to Newfoundland. So for four years in a row, I couldn't go home for Christmas. And I was sitting down feeling sorry for myself on the second year there. And, um, my uh, girlfriend's, uh, father, uh, mother at the time gave me a, a book and it was called near to heaven by sea. They mentioned it in the, um, uh, in, in the show. And on, in chapter four, or chapter five, there's a picture of mermaids, a drawing that was done by Sir Richard Rip- Whitburn, who was the former, governor of the colony, the Cupid's colony in Newfoundland, and uh, he was convinced that there were mermaids in St. John's Harbor, which is the old capital of North America, if you will, and right below it, there was a description of Peter Easton, so I started to read, and um, I I talked about this with Marty and Rick and Maddie and and Tony. I, I realized at that moment that I knew more about Genghis Khan, George Washington, and Peter the Great and I knew about Atlantic Canadian history and Atlantic Canadian history is fascinating. Um, it's, it's probably the, the most fascinating history for, certainly for me that, uh, exists certainly in North America. And I started reading about Easton and I realized at that moment where I had been about six, seven years previous. So I started reading and then I got hooked and I haven't stopped. So, uh, I've been in archives, uh, from Ireland to, uh, the British archives, uh, Italy, some in France and, uh, all on northeastern seaboard and I probably should have become an archaeologist. And I talked to Scarlett that I still might do some coursework in it. But uh I haven't picked I haven't stopped in I, I thought on the show I think it said 20, 25 years, but it's actually been 30 years plus now.
2: Wow. Wow. Yeah? That's amazing. You know, and that's something too, you know, we talk about, you know, and, we, and we've had um some of the other folks that have looked into to pirate ships and and ship treasure that's been sunken. We had um, um, Rob Westrick on the show who was doing research on the 1715 fleet uh, coming up from South America and making its way up. And then uh, tw- uh, 11 of the 12 ships got wrecked on the Florida coastline. Um, we had that with that particular show we had and we had him on and it gets so fascinating because you kind of get drawn into these stories. Yes there is the treasure to look for. Everybody wants to, um, look for treasure and find treasure, but it's so interesting to, um, to be able to get that story, you know, cause you get drawn into that. And I know that he drew us right into that story, just like this Peter Easton. Now I had heard of Peter Easton, you know, you, you and Marty were very, you know, drawn into him a long time ago. Um, I really didn't know that much about him. And now I'm really intrigued. And that was that's the yeah. beauty of these shows like this, that you can share this with us now. Um, okay. how did they, go ahead. Sorry. but
0: well, I remember when I was, John Levy and I were talking, and uh, and I, I he asked me, well, you know, he said something about Blackbeard and, and Easton. You know, how come we know so much about Blackbeard? And I said, when the true story, the real story comes out about Easton, it'll make Blackbeard look like he was playing in a sandbox.
2: Right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah but you know what that's the one you hear you hear about you know blackbeard you don't hear i mean peter easton yes like i said i've heard about him but i i've heard his name well yeah he was a pirate but i didn't honestly that you well, hear I mean, you just, hear about just, yeah.
3: yeah well i mean just to bill's point i mean I, I, you know i live here in atlantic canada too i'd heard of easton but until we saw until i saw this show i had no idea hmm so now I'm looking up, I'm reading about Easton.
2: Yeah. And to know that he was up there in your neck of the woods, you know, up there in uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland. Is it Newfoundland? I just, I, I want to make sure I say that correctly, Newfoundland. Um, yeah. I, I had no idea. And now you've taken us to places up there as well. Um, and, and that's where, that's where you live. You live up in that area. Is that where you're from?
0: So uh, I grew up in Placentia Bay, Newfoundland. It's an hour outside of St. John's, the capital. Uh, but now I live on the south shore, of Nova Scotia, just outside of Mahone Bay and Lunenburg, where they keep oh. So uh, it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a, an interesting story because I, I actually knew Dan Blankenship quite well for about twenty plus years, and um, actually, if I make is okay if I jump in and just tell a little story?
3: Yes, uh, please.
0: So um, yeah, so. One of the things that was really exciting for me, um, when you when you learn any type of discipline, you learn just about everything there is to know about it. So I've read and have a collection, ostensibly the best pirate collection, probably in Atlantic Canada. And um, I, w- I got to reading about another pirate that, um, I'm not going to mention him on the show, but he I put him in Atlantic Canada two years after he was killed in the Caribbean. And so I went down and met Dan Blankenship. And Dan, Dan invited me down to the island a dozen times, but I was always too busy, you know, with work and stuff. But I, I showed up this one time and Dan said, oh, you're finally here to, to look at the island. I said, Dan, I said, listen, I love you, but I'm not here to talk about Oak Island. I said, I've got my own quest in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I need to, to know the the, the, the Coles Notes version of what to look for for markings. and And he gave me a university degree in about three hours wow and uh so i went down to newfoundland and i uh, got dropped off in an island chain on a boat about five hours offshore and i kayaked in and i got caught in the worst storm you could ever imagine wow. and uh my my friend thought that we were we were washed away so he came back and got me the other day uh, the, uh, the day after because uh, he was wasn't supposed to come back for two days but we found some beautiful old iron markings that were about this high up out of the rock base. They were triangulated at the top and they had notches out of them. And I, I didn't have anything with me that I could go looking for. But right where this old folklore tale said there should be a treasure, um, I found all the markings and mm. hadn't back since. And, and so when I started thinking about it then is that there's a lot of links between the folk.
2: Uh-oh. Uh Oh, he froze on us
0: relative to what actually took place in like, you know, uh, the British archive records. And, uh, that's what I, I've been doing with Easton ever since.
2: Wow. That's fascinating. And, and, and it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's neat to, to dig into that. And, and so how did they, you, and that's how you met, uh, Tony Sampson also, right? Is you, I heard that you mentioned it quickly or briefly on the show that you met him. Yeah. What's that's that?
0: Tell me, that's tell me another two-minute story. Uh, so <laughs> I, I you know, with COVID and everything going on, I, I we I shut down my business for uh about three months, and I think the whole world was feeling a little bit of bad luck. So I I had this book that Dan Blankenship gave me. It was uh it was a, a 15th century Spanish mining book. And I said, I had this, it wasn't a dream and it wasn't anything really weird, but I felt like I need to get rid of this book after Dan died and David, his son needed to have it. And I never met David Blankenship, but I just, so I drove down to Oak Island and I was just going to hand the book over. Had I just handed the book over, this would never have happened. I never would have met Scarlett or you guys, but there was no one there. So I phoned uh, the 1-800 number for the tours. And uh, about an hour later, this fellow phones back and says, hey, mate, what are you doing with a 16th century Spanish (laughs) mining book? So I say, I said, I need to give it to you because I I think Dan Blankenship is haunting me. Mm. So I met him down behind Oak Island and uh, I I went to pass pass it to him. And uh, I said, this has to go to David. And I said, if you want this book. I will buy it for you, but this one has to go to David. And he said, well, there's a curse. Will it sink my boat? It said it might on one of your tours. <laughs> so uh, then he says, what are, you, what are you doing with it? And I said, well, I, I'm into Peter Easton. And uh, he said, well, I talk about Peter Easton on my tours all the time. And we were having a bit of fun by then. I said, well, Tony, probably most of what you're telling people is lies, <laughs> <Not> right? And <laughs> no. the other half is not the truth at all, right? So he laughed. And uh, I said, "I've got to go." He said, "Let's let's go out for a beer." So six months later, he phones me. I never thought I'd hear from him again. I thought he thought I might be a wingnut. And I show up at Tony's house, and we're having a beer. And Tony has a beautiful display of of some magnificent work that he's done. And I, I have so much respect for Tony Sampson. Like he's just a brilliant fellow and a good-hearted person. But yep. we sat down, and after we drank about a quarter of a beer, he says to me. Um, what do you know about Easton? I said, why don't you tell me first? No. So he started speaking and I got to tell you, Jeff, it was the most painful five minutes of my life.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, like, I finally looked at him and I said, Tony, are you done? <laughs> Cause he knows a lot about pirates, but uh, so anyway, he said, okay, you go ahead. And I wasn't being angry. We were just having fun. And I, I think it went on for about 40 minutes and I didn't take a breath. And he said, we're going to want you on the show. And, um, uh, So he said, are you afraid to be on camera? I said, Tony, you tell him I'll toast the show for him, right? (laughs) And uh, anyway, three days later, I get a call from uh, John and one of the other producers in Hollywood. And and, uh, we just started the conversation and it's been a great relationship ever since.
2: That's awesome. That's yeah. yeah. See, we love to get those stories like that. That's really, that's really fun. And you, and you got Tony to a T, you know, Tony's been on the show with us and he's a friend of the channel. He shows up. He might out actually, whoops, he might actually be out there watching right now. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, that's, that's awesome that you would share that. And you nailed him too, you know, about the whole, you know, the mate and all that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, bringing you on to the show like that, um, you know with your knowledge and your background so you obviously you corrected tony on some of the uh, misnomers that he had uh, yeah. about it um and and that's that's uh, you know g- going into your extensive knowledge on it that is what brought you onto the show so tell us a little bit about easton so you know we we, we saw we got a little bit of a an introduction to him as the show rolled along i had no idea the man had amassed you know 40 ships or thereabouts and and 1500 men something like that and he got started he was just a, a you know just got into the un, the navy i guess right to begin with and made his way up really quick what, what can you tell us about that how he got started
0: uh scarl did you want to add anything in i'm just taking over here now are we, are we okay <laughs>
2: Um, no, you uh, keep going, Billy. You're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to get bored over there. Now that so, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, I still want to tell the story about Charles and I getting locked in the car. Oh,
2: you got to tell that story. Tell a note
0: right here. We're not getting away no. without telling. No,
2: he's got it written <laughs> down. We won't forget.
0: <laughs> uh, so okay, so Easton, uh, as they talked to in the story, um, when when the with the introduction, Easton, um, there's not a lot known about his early military career. We know when he ended up in Newfoundland and Queen Elizabeth passing away and James, you know, uh, ratifying a peace with Spain that (laughs) about 35,000 British sailors were laid off. They were out of work. So he's in Newfoundland and I guess he had to create his own employment. What's interesting is that um, he, he disappears from the historical record. Uh, for about five years, it, it depends on uh, which which source you look at. But three to five years, and then he ends up on a pirate ship, actually a Danish pirate ship. Uh, in about um, uh, you know it was it was about 1607, and and then there was a, a about a year later there was an attempt on uh, the Spanish fleet that was coming back, but it was thwarted. And I believe he was testing the waters then. So I've been researching that for, for a bit. And then there was a group of pirates that were actually in the, uh, the northern part of Africa around Tunis. And, uh, and a lot of these pirates, one in particular named Bishop, um, he, he, he pretty much escaped and made his way back to Southern Ireland. So Easton wasn't the first pirate admiral. The real first pirate admiral was named, a guy named Richard Bishop. And I and I, within about uh, a year or so, him him being in southern southwest Ireland, um, and there's some really fanciful place names like um, uh, Schull and well the Baltimore in southern Ireland, and um, th- these that's where, where these guys were as a, as an outpost. And what happened was uh, Bishop decided to retire. So when he retired, then Easton took over and it was almost like there was a, a bit of a double cross with what was promised for an amnesty for Bishop. And I think Easton got, he got a little bit upset about it. And so within about six months of that, and and uh, I've made extensive lists and narratives of the ships that he took, but he took about 17 ships. Wow. And, and um, I would say somewhere around the summer of 1611, uh, 1610, 1611, He had uh, somewhere between forty ships and um, two thousand men under his command. Wow! And uh, there were some rumblings that the British Navy were planning. He—he he was uh, actually there was a spy. There's a lot of spy and intrigue in this. There was the British Navy was planning to do something. So it, actually, P- Peter Easton uh, set out. Three captains at a time sent him out on their own. He divided up his group. And um, so then his three, he was with two other uh, captains within his admiralty fleet. And he ended up going down to this Horn of Africa. I mean, there was one two-month period where I think they intercepted uh, a ship that was laden with salmon. And then the next ship they they had was uh, laden with wine. So they basically had salmon and wine to eat for about two months. Uh, and then they made their way back up and they did something that was really interesting. I don't—I still haven't figured out why they did, did it. But in the February of 1612, they ended up in the Isle of May. And then they crossed the North Atlantic in the Harbor Grace two months later. So there's been a lot of reports to say that they actually came up from the Caribbean and they were tattered. But I believe they actually came across the North Atlantic in the winter of 1612. So there must have been something really, really, uh, that they were afraid of to go back in the Southern waters again. And, and that's why they ended up in Harbor Grace. So when they went in the Harbor Grace, they had four ships that were tattered and that's when they met the three French bass ships. Now the story always goes in in the Harbor Grace area that, that the bass ships came out to meet them and St. Malo actually sunk. It may have sunk off the rocks. It may have been uh, injured and then drifted across the bay. We don't really know because it's all folklore but the governor of newfoundland in cupids um uh, about two months later wrote a letter uh back to the british parliament saying that he had six ships in harbor grace and so the historical account in that case was accurate with what the folklore account said as well hmm. you want me to go
2: on <laughs> yeah but, uh, yeah because you know this, yeah it's very interesting so okay. yeah. go ahead
0: so they had six ships and and he, they say that he took three Went out around a place called Trinity Bay, and they said it took every third or fifth man and provisions. And then they came back, and then they they came down towards St. John's, uh, captured uh, John Guy, who I think was the governor of the colony at the time. Held him him captive for a while, let him go, and uh, he was at. He asked that, requested that a pardon be issued. So John Guy sent you know, uh, uh, an envoy across. And there was also a second, uh, a pirate that went across the Sealy's pardon as well. And uh, he ended up in Ferryland. And Ferryland is on the south uh, east coast of Newfoundland. And um, he left there with, I believe, nine ships, intercepted the Spanish plate fleet. And uh, within several months of that, he was in Savoy region uh, and pretty much retired.
2: Wow. And, you know, that's that's amazing, too, because most uh, most of the pirate stories you hear, you know, Blackbird include uh, Blackbeard included, they didn't live very long. You know, their their reign of, of being a pirate was uh, short lived. Yep. Uh, and then so when when I heard that on the show that he retired back in, he went back across and and retired uh, over in the UK somewhere. Right. Um, That was I thought I was very surprised to hear that. Because they, they don't usually retire. They usually, you know, die out there, get beheaded or whatever for what they've done. So, well, I, okay, I'm sorry. Go I was going
1: to say there were also a couple of women pirates. Ooh. And they, they were meant to be executed. And the only reason they were not executed was because they were pregnant. And
2: oh, So wow. they had
1: that the, the stay of execution, yeah.
2: Wow. Now, who were they? Do you, do you know? Uh,
1: um. Uh, no, if you he- <laughs> marry somebody <in>. and
0: <laughs> I know. Okay, so Mary Ree was in a Dominican prison, I believe, and uh, I'm a real pirate nerd. I, I, I so, uh, you know, Mary Reed actually, I believe, died in the prison. Um, oh, really? I, I believe she was. They were both pregnant, and they were on the same boat when they caught. Or got uh, it was Jack Rackham's boat, and so they got caught. And uh, I think, I believe Anne Bonnie was the other one. She said, if you had fought instead of run like a dog, she said, we wouldn't have got caught. So he was hung. Mary Reed died of some, you know, like I think it was malaria or, or dysentery. And Anne Barney, they say, came from a wealthy ha- uh, family in the, uh, uh, in the, we'll say, the New England er- uh, area, and she disappeared to history. So they, there's even some reports that she may have even made it back safely. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. But I want to go back to Easton for a second because I believe there was a significant amount of collusion within the British Parliament and uh, in, in that area. With because there was another Captain um, Admiral uh, Mainwaring, and uh, Mainwaring was sent out to hunt for Easton, and within two years of him being sent out, he was actually in Savoy region having tea with Easton, and. Uh. Uh, and and they say he was in Newfoundland waters and he was in Newfoundland waters, I believe in the same area that Easton was and is very little known. And he wrote a book because he actually became a British member of parliament after he was uh, a pirate. And uh, his book is really interesting because it talks about the wherewithal and, and the hiding routines in, in Western Ireland.
2: Hmm. Very interesting. And I see that. Uh, yeah. Robert Westrick is with us. He's a, he just, uh, he brought up that point. Uh, he was talking about, uh, Mary, Mary Reed and Anne Bonnie, you know, he, he he's the one that that was his comment here. So, yeah, I mean, he's popped right up with because <laughs> he's uh, kind of looks at all the all of this stuff as well. So very interesting. That's 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 really cool that, you know, that there were women, women pirates as well. Now, did they have like a, a fleet of ships or really just one or I mean, how did that I mean, did they have their uh, tell could you what what kind of? background do you have on mary and anne i mean besides what you've already told us
0: um well okay so well mary reed it was uh, interesting um she was born in england and uh as, as far as i can remember now i remember i'm in i'm an eastern and i'm ned
2: logo <laughs> but she that.
0: her father was gone to sea i believe and when he came back the mother dressed and uh, mary reed as a boy her, his mother, because he wanted a son. That was the only child they had. So, he Mary grew up being dressed as a boy, and she actually uh, continued to dress as a boy. Ended up being a mercenary, I believe, in the Netherlands, and uh, you know, just served served in fighting different wars and just wherever she was needed. And then she ended up in the British Navy, and subsequently made her way to uh, the, the northeastern United States. And somewhere along that, that um, way, she, she ran into Anne Bonnie and, um, and they ended up on Captain Jack Rackham's uh, boat. Um, I don't know as much about the history of Anne Bonnie, but uh, what I'm really interested in is the Grace O'Malley. Because Grace O'Malley is the same genre as Easton, and I actually believe they may have even met at one point in time. Um, I was over in uh, Southwest Ireland uh, last year, Mayo County. If you ever go anywhere in Ireland, go to Mayo because it's beautiful there. And I was on a place called Clear Island, and she has one of her three castles in Clear Island. And normally you'd be laying on the beach or torn. I was actually climbing under the cliff bluffs about 30 feet in with mud all over. And I came back out and I was, again, with my girlfriend. I, she was all decked out in her bikini on the beach, and I'm head to toe in mud. So... <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to last much beyond that, but I had a great day myself looking at Anne, uh, Grace O'Malley. Yeah, oh,
2: I'd, I'd be doing what you were doing instead of the beach. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> she had a she
0: had a fleet and controlled most of the western half of um, Ireland, and she was so uh, audacious that she went up the Thames and met Queen Elizabeth, and when she stood in, fr- in front of Queen Elizabeth, she wouldn't bow. Now, for that, you could have almost a death sentence, isn't it? Yep. But uh Queen Elizabeth and her got along, and she let her. She didn't let her keep her lands in Western Ireland. But I believe she gave her son his freedom, and she didn't murder her. Mm. So it's uh yeah, it was pretty interesting.
2: Uh, I do have a story. This was uh, let's see from Terry, and it says, "Hi, Bill. Have you ever heard the stories of Easton's treasure being buried under the big hollow rock? Hollow in parentheses, uh, rock uh, at the old." uh
3: Grace, Grace Harbor Airport.
2: Yeah, Grace Harbor Airport. It was a folk Harbor Grace, port, I guess, a Harbor Grace. tale Yeah, we grew up uh, it's a folk tale that they heard when they were growing up in uh in Harbor Grace. So, what do you do you know anything about that or either one of you? Not me. No, there's some um there's
0: a, I do these people in Harbor Grace they're going to shoot me for this. But the thing is a lady <laughs> Lady Lake or something like that there's there's a lake just outside of Harbor Grace and they actually say there's there's some, a friend of mine once told me that there's stone steps that went down in the lake and that there's treasure, there's actually treasures are there. But what's interesting about Easton, he had such a legacy that there are, I know of at least eight different sites in Newfoundland where they say there's Easton treasure buried. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time I've actually heard of Harbour Grace uh, Airport. There were some stories and and it'd be nice if someone from Harbour Grace were listening, they could pipe in, but they said there was actually old stone caves at the uh, entrance of the harbor that were blown up a hundred years ago. Oh, so wow. that people wouldn't go into them. So, um, you know, who knows? There could, there could be, there could be anything in that area.
2: Wow. Yeah. And you know, cause that's this thing that so many of them had a lot of, of wealth and they didn't want to keep that all in one place. So, you know, we hear the tales of them, you know, burying stuff here and there in different in different spots. Yeah. Um, so have you have you decided? Or I mean, have you thought about going and searching? You'd have to go back, obviously, if you're living down in Mahone Bay area. You'd have to go back. I mean, have you thought about going to look for any of this stuff? Getting a metal detector and heading out.
0: Um. <laughs> so, so you, first of all, uh, from the archaeology point of view, because one of my new best friends is an archaeologist, mm-hmm. and uh, I would have to say that I, you know, you I'm
1: just get, wondering who that is, Bill. Yeah, are you cheating on me? <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> so I I, I wanted to go, uh,
1: so I got I listen before
0: I say anything I got to go and tell the story about her and I being locked in the car. Oh yeah, please up. do yes. So uh, we're on our first day of filming and we were driven. I've never had a driver in my life, so we we had a driver and Scarlett and I we ended up in the back seat of of this one uh, SUV, and we're driving there and. So I wasn't uh, so I uh, so I've been a I have been I do a lot of different things in my life but I've never been thought I'd be called a treasure hunter right I, I did this out of pure interest reading and researching so I didn't realize that there was a bit of a bit of a between archaeologists and treasure hunters there's a bit of a balancing act so here I am in the backseat of a car with you know a very experienced knowledgeable gifted archaeologist and I'm newly found treasure hunter so we were driving down, and we just started talking, and it was it was absolutely lovely. I have to say it was lovely. And then we get down to the marina, and uh, the driver wasn't sure if we were in the right place. So he gets out, goes down the marina, and he's down there for what seems like forever talking to the guys, and the door is locked, and we couldn't get out. And it's like plus 27, 28 degrees. And I said the the, the scarlet because we were it was still a bit formal between us. And I said, "Dude, you wouldn't treat your dog like this." Yeah. <laughs> and we both started to laugh, and and that was it. And then uh, it was like. Yeah, I don't it's know. Really, have
1: a great, it was a great icebreaker. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I got us out by the way. Just want you to know that. Oh, okay.
2: What? Well, you have to <laughs> yeah. climb over the seat and, uh, you know, open no, it. No,
1: I just flipped a switch. That's, oh, okay. <laughs> I think we were enjoying the conversation too much and got distracted. That's what it was. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: I, I can see that. So. But I would have been still in the car. I, you know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> until somebody came back to rescue you. Oh, yeah. sorry about that. Yeah, there you are, all hot. You're, <laughs> uh, needing, needing it's, water, water. Yeah. it's not right.
1: hard to talk to bill though and and he just starts on on peter easton and he's so knowledgeable as you as you can hear mm-hmm. and uh you get drawn in i mean you can't help but uh, share the excitement so thank you bill
2: <laughs> yeah for sure so um yeah i see that uh, terry has popped back in with uh let's see the airport is close by to lady lake uh, they say that there is places in the lake uh, that are bottomless. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's see, community west end of the town. So yeah, I've heard from hard, hard uh, Harbor Grace Bears and Cove Caves. So that's interesting, man. I, I you know, I, and you know the treasure hunting thing, kind of, you know, you hear Rick and Marty, you know, when they the intro to. Uh, beyond Oak Island. It talks about how they love treasure as a kid, you know, digging up, they were digging for treasure in their backyard and all this kind of stuff. And now they're on Oak Island and they're doing their thing there. And I think many of us, girls included, women included, uh, had that passion or that, that desire to find treasure, to dig up something fascinating. And, you know, many of us, you know, I, I never got into that. I do have a metal detector and I love going metal detecting and finding certain things. And I found some, some interesting things, No. No uh, great uh, precious uh, things like uh, Gary Drayton has found, but I have found some interesting things. But again, that takes you into that whole story. I When I find something, I want to know its background. I really want to dig in and know why was this there and whose was it? And that's part of that. That's part of that. You know, yes, the treasure is great, but it's also part of that history that, that really intrigues us. And that's what now you have the whole background on Peter Easton and some of the other pirates that were around. Now it's time to go find some treasure, right?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, so what it is, it's weeding through. So I spent about two years looking at on the online sources, plus some of the, uh, there there's a lot of written in Newfoundland in the early, mid-1900s, um, and it was a lot of a guesswork. So that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. But after weeding through this and looking in the different archives and looking at the timelines, I actually believe there might actually be one or two legitimate treasures um, in Atlantic Canada. And, um, and, and, and one of them definitely related to Easton. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so it, there's still a little bit of guesswork in there, you know, um, not guesswork, but there's, there's a little bit of of finite work you're going to have to do with uh, maybe magnetometers, side scan sonars, Maybe even a bit of lidar drone work on land to see if the the um, archetype points on land match up with those in the sea state. Um, But there there's there's reports that cross over with some of the Oak Island stories, and I can't tell you too much. Um, I'm gonna tell you if if uh, these guys pursue it, um, there's gonna be a lot of fun to be had, and there's gonna be stuff that's gonna come out that. Yeah, I don't
3: know. I can't. I can't go on. I get too excited. I don't. That's that's understandable because I mean, at the end of the show, they were quite, they were quite enthusiastic about what they had seen so far. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. If there is a future episode, I'm, I'm sure it's in the works. Yep.
2: Absolutely. And uh, so that's, uh, that's really interesting because um, again, you know, you want to tie things together, and I think that if there is something that ties with Oak Island, I think they're, yeah, there's going to definitely, they're going to be in touch with you about that. I, I believe um looking f- into that one of the things that I was really amazed about is the new technology that's come about. Um and I know that when you guys were out there and you were doing the um it was the um was it these uh sonar. the sonar you were looking with the sonar for the for the actual um cannons or or whatever that might be down there um and that's so hard to read that stuff i mean have have either I know being a marine uh, land and marine archaeologist, uh, Scarlett, are you familiar with using this kind of equipment? Is that something that you do on a, on yeah, a, on like a, on a regular days?
1: basis? Yeah. Uh, and I would say that uh, we weren't using a really good um, sonar. It was more like an echo sounder that you would find on just about every boat. But because it was a limited area that we were in, we could uh, use that. And, and we had an idea of where the site was already. Right. So yeah. those, those were all things that were great. But, for example, um, I'm the archaeologist for the Avro Arrow Model Search and Recovery Project in Lake Ontario. And for four years, we've been using a very high-resolution uh, side-scan sonar. And some of, some of it's autonomous. Uh, one unit that we were using was uh, through Kraken, and it's a, a million-dollar unit that they put in wow. the water. Um, and then uh, basically, it rides about uh, five meters off of the bottom, so you get a really good idea.
3: Oh yeah. But the,
1: the the trick, however, is if you've got a ship, you've got to be able. You're not gonna run into it with your your cable and stuff like that. Right. So there are tricks to it. Uh, you can also do multi-beam sonar. You can do a magnetometer. Uh, magnetometer uh, is great for metal things. But again, you're only doing one line, uh, whereas with, with uh, sonar, it's like a cone-shaped area that you're covering off. And then there's another device called uh, sub-bottom profiler. And you can actually read right into any of the sediments, depending See, on what That's
2: you're. the key. Yeah, that one's the key. I think too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, if so you've got a like, bottom or something. Perfect.
3: Yeah. Yep. So let me ask you this: so when, when you're doing the sonar, and you came across one one object, and and when I Tony looked at it, he goes, "Oh, that's nothing. That's a lobster trap."
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, how would you know it's a lobster trap and not a treasure chest?
1: Well, he's he's very familiar with lobster traps, so he'd seen lots of them already on on Sounder, and uh, so he was familiar with that shape. And often you may not recognize, as you say, what it might be. So what you do is you do uh, something called ground truthing. So you would put the ROV down with a camera. Uh, look at the target and then you go, oh yeah, okay, that's a rock or that's a lobster trap. So now you have a recognition point. So when you go up and you're just looking at the screen and you come across something like that again, you go, oh yeah, that's a rock. That's a lobster trap. Mm.
2: Yeah. Mm. So that new technology that they've come out with is really cool. And it, and it adds so much more to the search before you actually put bodies in the water. Um, and I, I was really impressed by the, um, the ROV or, you know, um, putting that in there, that water that you were up in that area was so clear. And that's something that we're not used to seeing when we, you know, watch on Oak Island and, and some other shows, even some of the stuff where, uh, Robert Westrick was doing off the coast of Florida down there, the water where you guys were diving or where they were diving Tony and them, uh, in, and um was so clear i mean is that is that pretty indicative of the water up in that area all the time or no no
1: no Uh, if, if you if you've got storm surge or something like that or if you've had a storm uh um three, four or five days uh, before you got there, then you're not gonna see anything. Visibility could be practically nothing. So we really were very fortunate in terms of the conditions that we had, both on the surface where it was uh, pretty calm and with the visibility, it was, we were we were fortunate, yeah.
3: And I see where the sea urchins had pretty much cleaned the kelp out for you too, so. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, there were a lot of those, but as you got a little further down, it changed from uh, sea urchins to a lot of starfish. So it was very pretty. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah.
0: What was really interesting is that area of the world about a month or two earlier uh, from when we were filming is an area where it's uh, there's tons of icebergs that flow through that area, uh, but not only was the water clear, but it was warm. And uh, I remember telling everybody in Newfoundland growing up, we'd always say, "We bring two or three layers with you." And um, here I, I was, uh, I had to eat my words because we're out in t-shirts getting burnt up with no sunscreen. In fact, when I did the filming on one of the days. Um, I remember Mena, uh, one of the producers, she, she had to come over and powder my nose about a dozen times because my nose is so burnt. It actually, it didn't go this way. Like Pinocchio went this way.
2: Oh, wow. And
0: yeah. We, <laughs> up, we got burnt up pretty bad down there. But it, 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 looked, looked, it looked like
3: a pretty calm day up there.
0: Yeah, Tony, had I believe said it, he hadn't seen it that common. I think in the Caribbean a, a couple of times, moved down there. stuff. So it, was, it was quite beautiful. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it really added to the whole project. That's for sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. How long were how long were they? Uh, you, you talked about the fact that you were out there for a couple of days. I mean, you you didn't just spend one day on the water, right? There was a couple of days that you were out there. Yeah,
1: yeah. The first day was just uh, survey work, and then the second day was putting divers in.
2: Oh, okay. All right. And how long were they actually diving? I mean, obviously, during the show, we saw them down for, you know, what, it looked like 15 minutes or whatever. Obviously, we know it was longer than that. But, I mean, were they in the water quite a while? Or?
1: There, there were two separate dives. Hmm. So um, uh, the first dive was when they were just trying to locate the the cannon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, we had a, a fair fairly good idea of where they were from the work of the previous day. Right. So that uh, that didn't take a long time to locate them. And then they did do some measurements, and then the uh, the second dive was Tony um, with the metal detector.
2: Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. And Tony and didn't, didn't come up with anything. Right. Release that they showed on the on the television show. He didn't come up with anything.
1: No, nor was he allowed to come up with anything. So I just, right, no, I, I just mean, well, yeah, I mean, finding it yeah. Yeah, it was no, the, no, he didn't. That he that didn't find anything at all. There were no no hard no hard hits at all.
2: Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Because yeah. you would think if there's cannons down there that there would be something else.
1: Well, uh, this is a
2: mount, nope. right so
1: think of an inverted uh like a hill a small hill oh, and okay. you' those those two cannons that you saw were pretty much lodged in some crevasses as well, so anything yeah, bigger than that might have just slid right down that seamount. I don't know how deep that goes, and one of the things I did say is if uh, if there was a return, what we should be doing is is going a little further afield with a uh, better side scan sonar, doing some good tracks to see if there's anything down there.
3: Yeah, yeah throw, throw in a couple of storms and the out iceberg and there's not going to be much left up there, is there?
1: Not really, no. An iceberg will take it out. Pack ice mm-hmm. will take it out. and And again, any kind of good strong waves will do the same thing. Should also be looking on the shore. You don't know what's been washed
2: up there. Yep, that's 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 Gary Drayton's uh, forte right there is working along the shoreline, and it's amazing that do things would wash up like that. I mean, like that that gold ring, gold emerald ring that he found. I mean, mm-hmm. how in the world? But it's storm surge and storms blowing things like that. I mean, you would think how in the heck could something that's made out of gold end up was out in the water and now it's on the beach? I mean, how is that possible? But it is. I mean, it happens.
1: Oh yeah, things tumble around quite a bit, right? So.
0: Yep. What's really what's interesting is that um, since I've been back, I've been getting emails um, and photographs uh, of finds that they're finding in Harbor Grace and uh, along the shoreline, uh, like beautiful Masonic brooches, wow. uh, coins. Um, so now they know that I've been there uh, with with the crew. I'm getting emails and pictures every day, but I I can't even, yeah, I I, I would love to be able to take the pictures and show you, but there's some beautiful beautiful pieces that you would never ever imagine would be in that remote area of the world wow yeah that's amazing
2: i would want to and now now i've got a new a new love for uh, newfoundland and i'd love to get get up there and uh have a look myself but man that's that's now what's what's the rules on that if it's now like down in florida and robert uh westrick explained this to us as well but if you're if you find something in the water it has to be documented, and the government of the area gets a certain percentage of it, and you get to keep a certain percentage. Uh, based up there, there is a def- definition as to if it's a relic or something in there as well. And I'm he he may you know correct me on some of that. But if you find it on the beach, it's yours. Does that is that kind of work the same way up there or no? No, No, no.
1: (laughs) everything both on land and underwater is subject to an archaeological license and you can't and should not be picking things up. Again, it's that whole association thing that I spoke about before. You start to remove things. Now that evidence is gone and that part of the story is gone. It might lead an archaeologist to finding the rest of the site or
2: the major components of a site. Very true. So yeah. if you find something, you get hold of somebody right away and say, "Hey, look, I found this," and
1: yeah and, and you should actually uh make a note of where it's located, and I wouldn't remove it I, I mean, speak to the provincial archaeologists. I'm more familiar with Ontario rules than than Newfoundland rules, but um, the provincial archaeologists, I'm sure wouldn't have any issue t- with talking to people about it
2: right, right, Wow fascinating stuff bill i don't know how much time you guys had we're about an hour and five in if you don't mind we'll continue or if you need to go i i didn't want to hold you up too long i know you've got families and and uh and all of that but um it's it's up to you if you wanted to keep going a little bit
0: i'm good for a little bit longer
1: okay all right, I'll stick all right. Around. You a bit longer too sure
2: yeah all right um you know t- taking a look at um I guess it was the uh, more of the the stuff with those cannons. I, I'm fascinated by that because is that the only wreck of his stuff that you, that is known? What's what's the history of other ships of Peter Easton's that may be somewhere in that area? Do you, what do you have any knowledge I, on that? I-
1: I just back up a bit and say we don't know for sure that those cannons right. are associated right. with Peter Easton at all. Right. So I, I don't want to. Uh, Great, thank you for correcting me on know it. that. Hoping. Yeah. But so, Billy, you can answer the rest of the question. <laughs>
0: um. So what we know of Peter Easton shipwrecks, we know, for example, in the Isle of May in the winter of 1612, there's probably two ships in the Isle of May.
2: Now, where where is the Isle of May? By the way, I'm, you mentioned that earlier. In Scotland. Okay. Okay. Thank you.
0: Um, but in Newfoundland, I'm not sure that there is there is any documented evidence of shipwrecks. There's um, uh, a place down in the near Ferryland uh, where they say that there was a shipwreck there, and then there's um, there's re- there's re- there's reported cases around the province, but I, I don't think that anyone's ever documented uh, documented one yet.
2: Yeah. Cause that's one of the things that I thought about is that if he had that many ships and that many men or people, uh, you know, working for him on those different ships and they were getting into battles, are there any known battle areas that they, they took place that there may have been, he may have lost ships during a battle that are around anywhere in that area? Uh-huh. Are there known battles that he got into with, with anyone?
0: No, not actually, not, not, not a part of the historical record. Some folklore mm-hmm. indications that maybe there was one in uh, southwest Newfoundland and maybe one on the west coast, but nothing documented. And the thing you have to remember, when he left Fairyland in 1612, um, mm-hmm. he ended up in southern France. He actually sailed into southern France with nine ships. And um, so he brought most of his ships with him. The ships that he had in Southern Ireland a year earlier, he divided those up and the other captains took those and went to different uh, locations. Some retired, some got caught. Um, None were near as successful as he was.
3: So what what would his life look like post-retirement? He's gone to Savoy, Southern France. Mm -hmm. He's got 9, 10, 12 ships full of whatever. Mm -hmm. Do they just kind of buy their way into the country or? He married his way into a wealthy family.
0: He became uh, he he worked a, a deal out with the Duke of Savoy region. So Savoy at that point in time was half France, half Italy, or uh, and, and and or it's half France, half Italy now. And what he did when he landed on the shore in fifteen um, thirteen in February, it took him a full month to go inland. Uh, and in March twentieth, fifteen thirteen. He was actually sitting with the Duke of Savoy and there was a big kerfuffle because the Duke of Savoy was now courting uh, a pirate, a very well-known pirate. And so he made concessions with the Duke of Savoy. And there's, it's really fascinating because he was courted by a, a three or four different dukes along the Italian peninsula there. And he ended up in Savoy and he gave up most of his riches. And for that, they say he received Somewhere in the neighborhood, um, we can't tell if it's 4,000 British pounds or 4,000, I think it's called leviers. Um, we're actually looking at translations of it now, and I have a pile of historical documents that are being translated.
3: Oh.
0: Um, so he had his own gold mine. Uh, he, he gave up most of his wealth, but he still retained uh, a, a palace and some warehouses to store some of his stuff, and he married it into one of the wealthier families there. For a while, he worked for the Duke of Savoy. He was known as a marksman. He would take out the main mast in ships that he went to battle with. So he worked for the Duke of Savoy against the Turks for a while. And um, then he pretty much went in, he retired in the history. They say, oh, oh, I forgot, about a year after he was in Savoy region, he actually got shot by a Harquebus, which is an old, it's old, uh, it's it's a gun about this big. It has a large round end on it. it looks like I oh yeah, yeah. looks like a trumpet.
2: like a blunderbust. Oh he froze. Oh, I hope he comes back.
0: at the time. Oh, there he is. Uh, he, um, that he was, he was laid up for a while he was incapacitated, uh, but he, he stayed in that general region for, for quite some time. Uh, some of the historical records seem to end around 1620, but I reasonably believe that he lived a bit longer than that, and I'll know once my translations are complete.
2: Interesting. That's quite the retirement. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it is.
0: Yeah. What's interesting is that when we look at what happened with Oak Island, I I remember very early on, I didn't get involved in it at all. And I remember talking to Dan Blankenship about it years ago. You know, when you talk about pirates that had the capability to do work, if there was a dig that had to occur in Oak Island, Mm -hmm. he had captured uh, at least three Spanish ships. He commanded uh, at least 2000 men. He had his own gold mine and I haven't been able to locate that yet, although I'm working with a geologist in the province of Nova Scotia. We're looking at old abandoned gold mines that would have existed in eastern Canada, because it's very unlikely he would have owned a gold mine anywhere in England or Ireland at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so. He had the capability to do mining as well, and he was a British military officer. So I look at, I keep watching the Oak Island shows, and I talked a little bit about this uh, with Rick and Maddie when we're there, and actually Tony over a few beer. But uh, he's probably the only one of all the pirates that I know of that could have done what they've done
3: in Oak Island. Yeah, Yeah. there were gold mines, and there were many gold mines around Nova Scotia, too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And some have some have speculated that, you know, that what they were doing on Oak Island, that they were actually mining for gold there because of Gold River dumping into Mahone Bay right there. Um, I don't want to believe that. I, I don't think that was the case. And something that, you know, like we've talked about on the show with Oak Island many times is that who would have been capable, not only in the manpower, but in the knowledge and the tools to be able to do what was supposedly done on Oak Island to dig those tunnels that deep underground, you know, who had the capability of doing such a thing and the engineering to do such a thing. So now you added Peter Easton into this picture that he had not only the manpower, but maybe the knowledge to be able to do this as well.
3: And he was Very a British naval, British naval officer, which meant he probably had access yep. to Cornish miners as well.
2: Yep. Wow. Very interesting. Yep. Oh, now, see, now you're, you're a new, now therapist. A whole new rabbit hole. <laughs>
3: I have always said I'm not
0: going to get on be one of these stairs. I just, you look. I, I remember uh, I watched the show many, many times before I got involved with this group, and um, and I, I I've listened to Marty say many times about Easton. I said, Marty, I was I keep saying at home, Marty, if you only knew half of what he was able doing, and and I've only touched. So I'm giving you snippets of what actually is known about him. Yeah. So uh, it's 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 a lot of fun actually. <laughs> I, if one thing I would say um, is that. Uh, you know these guys are very popular men. They're, they're they're you know they're icons in this field, if you will, and uh, they treated me with the tremendous amount of respect. And the, the, these guys that you see on TV, Rick and Marty and uh, Maddie and Tony, are the real deal. Uh, solid people. They're gracious, kind and uh, very respectful. I can't say enough good about them. If if I never ever was involved with them again, I would have nothing but good to say about these guys.
2: Is that kind of how you feel too, Scarlett?
1: Oh, yeah. Bill summed that up really, really well. I was actually a little concerned um, being involved at first because it it had such a notoriety attached to it, the show. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, are I've done documentaries and there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that isn't translated onto the film and vice versa. And I was thinking the same thing was going to happen here. And instead, what you, what I found was um, I, I met Rick only, not Marty. Right. Um, and Maddie, of course, I met as well. And they're both very sincere, very real people and a genuine warmth and interest in everything that you say and do.
3: Yeah. It, was, it made, was a great
1: pleasure doing the, uh, the project
2: with them.
3: Yeah, and they seem to take being screeched in really well.
2: Yes, that was my next thing. I had to talk <laughs> about being screeched in. I was I was looking over here at my pictures that I had for the show, and, and everybody who watches me on a regular basis, they know I have a ton of pictures, uh, which, you know, when we do these beyonds, I don't need to use them quite so much because we have guests that were there, and, and you, you provide your own mental picture for us.
1: Well, you, you did miss out a lot, actually. Um, I, I didn't get screeched in because I've been screeched in a couple of times already. Oh, so okay. I, I've, I've done I my thing. I don't need to do that anymore. However, you let Bill loose with a couple of beer in him. And he was screeching in the rest of the the cast and crew after the fact. And he had the entire restaurant joining in. And I, I tell you, he should have been a stand-up comic. He He had everybody in stitches. It was amazing. <laughs> And so Alana was there and then John, our producer as well. And uh, the producer couldn't quite get his uh, tongue around the the answer, the correct answer. So he would just yell out, I do. I do all the time. (laughs) And Bill kept saying, I'm not asking if you want to get married. So So it's really good fun.
2: Yeah. So Bill, you've been through this before, I guess, right? So you knew what to expect.
0: Yeah, I've done, I've done a few, uh, when I went to school in Toronto, I, I'd scree- I, I I'd, I'd, uh, conducted a few screech-ins and yeah, John Levy asked me if I'd screech in him, uh, screech him in. And, uh, I don't think he'd ask me to do it again. It was, uh, but, but <laughs> it was, uh, it was a ton of fun. And, uh, yeah, there's a few more, we actually, there was a group of, uh, Newfoundlanders about 20 or 30. They're all probably between 55 and 70. And they were all watching as the cast and crew, we went upstairs afterwards and, uh, uh, John was so bad at it that um, I actually had to defer to the table of Newfoundlanders to, to see if they would actually allow him in as an honorary Newfoundlander. So they were
3: unanimous; they let him in. So all was good. <laughs> Please let him in.
2: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So watching. I mean, you, <laughs> Maddie, you know, watching that happening, that was that was really uh, a lot of fun. I think for everybody to to see that taking place but uh so this is a this is a tradition is it just in this particular place or is it a tradition up there all over
0: it's it's a tradition all over newfoundland and wherever you Mm see newfoundland and actually there's two different ways of doing it you either uh some it changes from place to place sometimes they'll make you stand in seaweed sometimes um now, if you if so, it's supposed to go. Indeed, is me. and Me, big jib draw. And if you don't say it correctly, you have to drink a, a shot of screech, and then you have to say it again. So sometimes it gets more difficult with each subsequent Passover. So I, I feel like Maddie and and um, and uh, Rick may have had a bit of coaching.
3: Um, so they got it right on the first first go around.
0: But
2: oh, I was going to say, how many tries did they go? Okay, yeah. Yeah,
3: I was wondering about that because Rick nailed it the first trip around. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Maddie went I think Maddie went home with the fish. <laughs> it was pretty
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, looking at the Yeah, yeah <laughs> <laughs> looks like a pretty passionate kiss right there. <laughs> yeah.
0: And what, what you don't see around uh is that the bar was full uh of people and uh and yeah, pretty passionate. And, and Rick turned around and, and thanked everyone in the bar afterwards and uh you know and, and it was it was really warm. It was it was just it, it was really fun. It was a lot yeah. of fun.
2: You know, and that's that's something that you you both have mentioned here. And that is what we have come to know by watching uh, The Curse of Oak Island for the last, you know, nine seasons Um, and then watching, you know, Beyond Oak Island and all the drilling downs with Matty Blake. You you feel like you really get to know who they are um, and you're seeing the show and everything through their eyes And that's something that we've talked about. You know, people have said, you know, there's been people obviously in the groups or whatever, and you catch different comments being made, people saying, oh, they plant these things that Gary finds and they do this and they, they, it's all, it's nothing's real there. It's all been, you know, faked or whatever. And I, and I have to look at those people and just, you know, obviously you haven't really watched the show because if you had, you would realize that. I and and this is my belief and I've got it and I've got it played back to me by folks like yourself and every other person that I've talked to who has been on the show has said the same thing that they're, they are men of integrity there is no planting yes they might find something wait till the cam- cameras are always there but they want to get the actual reaction of them finding this for the first time and and get that on film so they don't plant things they don't rehearse things or whatever, or try to set things up like that. It's all, you know, it's, it's done with integrity and, and that's the beauty of it. And that's what draws us into loving the show and caring about the people that are doing this. Um, and, and you guys just alluded to that as well.
1: Uh, if I could just say something, when we were having a meal at that same restaurant, um, I mean, Rick is Rick is a personality, so he's known, and uh, there were people lining up to get his autograph, and he was so kind. He would stand up, look at the person, ask them some questions before he signed anything for them. Like he wanted genuinely to get to know these people first, yeah. and and that really um, it touches you when you see somebody who's genuine, because I've seen other people uh, in you know in, in my many years who just, you know, basically toss people aside and and right. it's all about them and, and and that's not the way it is. Right. Yeah. I, again I was very, very I came on board not knowing exactly what was gonna go on. I hadn't seen the show, I'll be honest. And Rick actually said that was a good thing. I came in unbiased. Mm-hmm. Um Me too. Yeah, Maddie was a little disappointed. He said, we're in 76 countries. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And and I have, however, since looked at the show, (laughs) to to be fair. Um, uh, But, you know, I was also expecting them to challenge me in terms of the license that I had for the the Mm. site and what they could and couldn't do. And that never happened. So, again, very respectful. Um, Rick and I had many discussions about how treasure hunters and archaeologists maybe could sort of meet in the mi- middle, um, yep. and it's worth discussing for sure. And actually, I right after I came off that, I went into a symposium and and gave a talk about it. So wow. about the the possibility of uh, everybody contributing in some way and then respecting each other in terms of what their abilities bring to the to the table. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's very true because, and that's one of the things that we've mentioned about what they do, what they're doing on Oak Island. Now they're running into an issue that they had this last season uh, and going still ongoing into, you know, they're going to begin filming season 10 here uh, really soon. And it's the fact that they are trying to do this the right way. They have Laird Niven out there and they've had him there for several years now. They're trying to make sure that they do this the right way. They don't want to just go do a massive dig, I, and I have to be nice towards Robert Dunfield. I, you know, we used to I used to refer to him as Dunfield the Destroyer because of what he just tore up. But he had a plan. He had a limited amount of time, and he did have a, 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 a way about going on about things. He did document some stuff. But that's the thing about Rick and Marty and the team is they try to document everything, and keep it as much as they can um, taking pictures, taking GPS, taking, uh, you know, coordinates on everything. It's, it's really, they do, I think they do a pretty good job with this. You do hear Marty has mentioned, you heard him on the show saying, Oh, the dreaded archeologist, but they brought them out for the reason because they wanted to see what they and help document everything properly. Now they've run into the issue with, you know, uh, some of the areas of the Island being cordoned off that they can't search for because of the artifacts that were found that you're right though yeah that's exactly what you're saying is there needs to be that medium between them where they can work together because they can benefit one another in mm-hmm. this in this search
1: yeah well, cer- so. certainly um avocationals and and amateurs uh have resources both in terms of time and money where archaeologists don't i mean i have to have my projects funded and it's very rare that you ever have enough money to do something great yeah. um so, like even this, this little sort of glimpse into Peter Easton was great. We would never have been able to do it without the support of this production. Um, the Avro Aero project was totally privately funded. And wow. there were millions of dollars spent on that. And wow. we did recover a model, and it's sitting in the Museum of uh, um, Space and Aviation in Ottawa. But again, none of this would have happened unless there was cooperation between archaeologists and the avocational groups. Uh, Yeah, do it under license, and let's talk about what you bring to the table, what you can bring to the table, and then see what can be done in in a a respectful way, and one that's going to garner the most information at the end of the day, because that's what
2: you both want. Exactly. It truly is. It truly is. Um, wow. So I tell you what, this has been fascinating. And there was some really a few, few questions that kind of went by. I know there was one that's probably going to throw out there to uh, to Bill uh, from Robot. And he asked about a particular Lavasseur. Uh, do you know much about the, this particular pirate? Uh, any connection, he says, with Lavasseur and the 1700 pirates known as the Busse, uh, the Buzzard, captured largest bounty known?
0: So no, I don't. But what's really interesting is the area of Newfoundland that I came from, it's a place called Placentia or mm-hmm. Plaisance. And Plaisance is the old French capital of Newfoundland, ostensibly the old French capital of North America.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and there's a lot of French place names in that area that there's, there's a peculiarity about why they're named. And um, there's, there's a lot of folklore accounts about, what may or may not be out in that area but uh was specifically about the, the buzzard no i don't know i don't know much about him
2: mm, okay well there's another one for you to, and we you know we had uh, uh we actually have had him on the show twice a uh, young man who was on the very first beyond oak island uh christian roper and uh he was looking into lafitte and how he was down in the uh gulf of mexico and ended up into texas um and that storyline is pretty interesting and you know in but one of the interesting things in in uh about the pirates is the whole how they had a a a, a mark uh, given by a government a, a king or a queen or something to be able to go in and, and be a privateer and basically steal from another country's ships and, and and all of that and then uh you know there was a point in this particular show where they said that there was a uh, i think it was this I'm going to show this picture here real quick and then we're gonna to start to wrap things up here. But this proclamation by the king, um uh basically getting rid of the pirates and the privateers. Yep. Um so you, was it mark of writ? What was that? How was that done or pronounced? Is that what it was called? The mark of writ where uh, they were allowed letter to of mark,
3: letter, letter of mark, I think, wasn't it? Letter mark? Letter of marquee. Yeah, yeah.
2: So they that basically, basically got them. Them. Go ahead. that
3: basically, that basically gave him permission to uh, board the Spanish ships, take the treasure from the Spanish, and then, of course, when they when they came to a treaty with the Spanish, the privateers were yep. outlawed.
2: Outlawed at that point, and then they just became pirates. Those who wanted yep. to keep on doing that kind of thing. Um, well, you know Actually,
0: there's a there's a nice twist to that as well because uh, there was when when uh, James James the first outlawed uh, privateering mm-hmm. um, with the treaty with um, Spain. Uh, a lot of uh, English pri- privateers ended up on Dutch ships. And there's there was a couple of reported instances where the only person who was Dutch on the ship was the cook and <laughs> and, and the carpenter and everybody else was English on the Dutch ship. And they went around the south coast of uh, uh, Ireland and England acting as, as privateers on, against Spanish ships. That, that happened for a couple of years until um, James even outlawed that.
2: Wow. Yep. I tell you, this this is really fascinating, and you have uh, given us a great look into these things. I hope that we both we see you both again uh, on other episodes uh, of uh, Beyond Oak Island. Um, I know that your expertise, Bill, you and your knowledge of of Peter Easton, I think, and other stuff you've talked about here tonight about other possible treasure areas and things like that. We're probably going to hear from you again, Scarlett, Your background, though, I mean, this is this is you are the type of person they need uh really to to help them i mean i hope that they bring you around again i mean obviously you you did a fantastic job on the show um, um, and you really brought a lot to it i think and uh i hope they use you again have, have you had other contact with them at all you know about stuff
1: if um, i may ask
2: i know you probably can't say too much about stuff like that but no, they, can... they,
1: they reached out to me for another show called the unexplained but um oh yeah yeah. no but i i don't know anything about what they wanted me to talk about so oh. it, did, it didn't make any sense from there were experts in that area and i i just thought it would be better that they talked to them i'm happy to participate in more of these um and if it if it means working with bill and being locked in a car again for a little <laughs> while, <laughs> they'll be it you know <laughs>
3: I
2: have to say, oh, you, guys made a, you guys made a great team out there. You sure. did. I thought you make a great team because I think, you got you got the treasure.
1: Yeah, yeah. All, I think all of us got along really, really well together, and uh, the personalities just meshed. It was, it really was a good um, melding of the minds and and
2: objectives as well. Yep. Yeah, I think so, and I think I, I, I you know what? I think you two. You know, stay in touch. You have. You mentioned already that you stay in touch with each other because I think you make a good team. You really do. I, I think this is uh, uh, a go places. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so I'm going to ask one last question before we wrap this up. Uh, any funny stories uh, you've already shared about the screeching you got shared about locked in, locked in the car. Any other little funny story or something that we did not see on the show that you could share with us something uh maddie blake falling in the lake say,
3: if, you, if you get any dirt on
2: maddie blake would love to hear dirt it. on maddie blake that we can you know taunting with later
1: no 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 dirt uh, he, he really was anxious to get in the water and and uh he's a fairly new diver still so um uh, he he hadn't come prepared on this one unfortunately otherwise he would have been in there pretty quick as well
2: Bill, anything you want to share with us? <laughs>
0: uh, so um, it might sound a little bit silly, but um, it, it, and it's not directly related to the show. But uh, so I'm a, I'm a single dad. I have two boys that are 10 and 11, Riley and Liam. And um, so we flew down together, and they stayed with my sister. But uh, I, I'll tell you how how much thought went into what they they did. We we flew down ahead of the crew uh, about two or three days uh, ahead of time. And my little boys are always yammering. They're always talking, right? And they're kind of like their dad. So anyway, we're, we're walking out of the airport and we're just walking down. You see all these orange cabs and I'm walking, I'm lugging all the luggage, like, and, and I'm not hearing the yammering. So I turn around and there's this sign. There's this guy holding the sign that says Bill Smith. And so I walk back my boys are like, look, at am dead. That's you. <laughs> so I go back and, um, I, the guy looks at me, and it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a private, you know, uh, limousine service, wow. and and I I, I went and um, it was like like it was an SUV limo, right? It was, it was pretty nice, and uh, I went back, and the guy said, "Are you you Bill Smith?" And the boys say, "You're Bill Smith," and I said, "Yeah," and uh, so "What do you do for a living?" I said, "Well, I'm a chiropractor." He goes, "No, you're wrong, Bill Smith." So <laughs> I turn around, I start walking back down towards the orange cabs. And I, I, I mean, it was was, wasn't one of my shinier moments. And about 10 seconds later, I went, wait a minute. So I walked back. I said, you with the production. He goes, you're the right Bill Smith. <laughs> so with that, and I, I can't help it. It was planned this way. This gentleman bent over and he picked up my boy's luggage from them. And he opened the door for my two boys and let my sons in the car. And they were just looking at me like, dad, is this okay? <laughs> get in the car. And then he, he, and then he comes and gets mine. And, uh, and I think they were, they were really blown away by it. And then we dropped the boys off my sister and and the guy s- asked me, he says, Bill, can I have your autograph? And the boys were there. And for them, they were like, they were just, you could tell yeah. it was, that was an experience for them that they won't forget. So, yeah. um, and, the fact that they put enough forethought into making that happen, uh, just a special moment. So yeah, it really,
2: that's really cool. That yep. really is. Yeah, and that and that, like I said, that's that that means a lot to, to hear stories like that about this show and about you know because we we really love the show and we really think that it's it's based with really good people and that just that just uh, amplifies that. Um, you know, to us all, I think, and that's real, that's really cool. And they, you're right; they will, they'll carry that on. Dad's a superstar now, and uh, so is Scarlett. I mean, you both are. <laughs> uh, you know, you're you're world renowned now because this show is seen in 57 countries or something like that. So there you go; you're both uh, world renowned. Well, I tell you. I would say
1: the entire cast and crew were incredible, and not just not just the the stars, but the entire cast and crew. We were treated royally, as Bill said. Yeah,
2: that's yeah. great. It really is. Okay, well, we're going to wrap things up now. And I tell you what, I and that's then been the beauty. And and again, uh, this is something that uh, folks uh, that watch the show on a regular basis have heard me say many times. Is that the beauty of this show, and the blessing for me in this is that I've been able to meet such wonderful people. And thank you to Jan again for bringing you and asking you both to join us here uh, tonight, Tom and I. Um, and I, I said that, that that I get, I've got, I've been able to meet such wonderful people, such as yourselves, um, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. And I know probably Tom would agree with that. Exactly.
3: Yes, for sure. You know
2: that that we get to to hear stories from you guys. And now we can call you acquaintances, uh, maybe even get to friends at some point. Um, But let's stay in touch because if you have other interests and things that I love to talk about treasure hunting, I love to talk about archaeology. So if you have other stories that you would like to share down the road, something interesting has come up or some new thing that you're not under NDA to not talk about, I would love to hear from you and have you come back on the show and share those with us. That would be fantastic. And again, I thank you so very, very much for being on with us tonight. Thank that's you amazing.
1: for inviting us.
2: All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, that's about it for us on this uh, episode of uh, Beyond Oak Island uh, and the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond. And uh, so I really appreciate you all being here. We don't have coming up this Saturday, but we will be back next Wednesday night. Uh, for The Curse of Oak Island uh, episode number 20, which was uh, The Head and Truth, talking about the head and shaft. So it was called The Head and Truth. Uh, so we'll we'll be, uh, we're looking forward to that one. And uh, we'll see you here on Wednesday night. So everybody have a great weekend and we will see you next time right here on The Curse of Oak Island and beyond. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody.